I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today, in honor of the celebration of President's Day, we focus on one of the most vibrant constitutional uh, debates today, and that is the proper scope of presidential power. The controversies over presidential power in the Obama administration have centered on the use of executive orders, the president's war-making ability, and his prerogatives to enforce laws passed by Congress. These issues are hardly new. They have dated back to the framing of the republic, and today we are joined by two of the top constitutional scholars of our times to discuss the critical question, uh, which presidents have the greatest legacies of being faithful to the Constitution in exercising their far-reaching powers, and what is the scope of presidential power? Uh, these two gentlemen are not only uh, the top scholars in America, they are great friends of the Constitution Center, and I'm thrilled that just last week we announced that they are part of a spectacular advisory board, the Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board, that will oversee uh, years of debates and podcasts and constitutional education. Erwin uh, Chemerinsky is the founding dean and distinguished professor of law and the Raymond Pryke Professor of First Amendment Law at the University of California Irvine School of Law. In January 2014, National Jurist Magazine named Dean Chemerinsky as the most influential person in legal education in the United States. Richard Epstein is Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law and Director of the Classical Liberal Institute at New York University School of Law. Professor Epstein was at the National Constitution Center this fall discussing his landmark book, The Classical Liberal Constitution. Uh, all right, uh, gentlemen, let's get right into it. Uh, President Obama this week um, asked for an authorization of use of military force resolution from Congress. Uh, he did request the resolution, but the White House said that he was under no constitutional requirement to do so. Uh, Professor Chemerinsky, is there a constitutional conflict here? Uh, is President Obama trying to have it both ways, or is he um, appropriately deferring to Congress in asking for the authorization of the use of military force? There is a potential constitutional conflict here. Congress rightly is going to insist that there be an authorization for the use of force. President Obama is trying to say none is necessary. I believe that an authorization for the use of force is necessary, especially if there's going to be a prolonged use of force. In part, this is because of the War Powers Resolution that was passed in 1973, a federal statute that requires congressional approval. But more importantly, I believe that the framework of the Constitution is that generally take two branches of government to approve any important action. Two branches of government have to be involved in making laws, two branches of government have to be involved in enforcing laws, and two branches of government have to be involved if we're going to go to war. Uh, Professor Epstein, do you agree with uh, uh, Professor Chemerinsky? And, and tell us also your thoughts about President Obama's uh, insistence that he uh, have the power to use force against associated conflicts, not only ISIL, but also associated conflicts. It was that language in the original use of force resolution that led President Bush to claim uh, a rather expansive uh, ability to wage war. Is President Obama, like President Bush, embracing a too broad or appropriate vision of executive power? 
Well, first of all, I, I don't think that we have here a primarily a constitutional conflict. We have a dispute over whether or not the authorization that is contained in the AUMF of 2001 is in fact broad enough to cover activities against offshoots of ISIS, none of which were around, offshoots of Al-Qaeda, none of which were around at the time of the resolution. And there's a debate as to whether or not you could be an offshoot if it turns out that you're also a rival. My view on that is I think the authorization was supposed to be broad and flexible under the circumstances, and the fact that the internal politics of the al-Qaeda and the ISIS people was rather difficult to comprehend should not bear on the scope of the entitlement and the interpretation. Uh, what the president could do, therefore, I think is to rest on that, but my view is he doesn't want the authorization of, mus of military force coming out of this. He's doing exactly the opposite. He wants to restrict the kind of powers that he can have below those which are presently available under the existing statute. And the last provision of the new AUMF is, in fact, one that states, hey, uh, the 2001 uh, situation is a dead deal. So there are many people of the red state variety who say, I'd rather work under the old one than under the new one. And this seems to me to be much more of a political than a constitutional struggle. Now, if in fact you believe uh, that there is um, no authorization under the 2001 Act and that you have to do this or you have nothing at all, uh, it would be a very different game. What's so hard about this is Irving may be right, and I think he is, that it takes two branches of government in order to execute most kinds of ballot actions, but the courts are not going to get themselves involved in this one, and so the impasse could create genuine difficulties going down the road. I think the president is trying to stop those things, uh, but I think in effect that he's putting so many limitations on what he can do that there are many people who said this is not a recipe for victory, this is a recipe for long-term conflict without any clear resolution, and that's the political dimension that we're facing right now. Great. One more beat on this, Erwin. Uh, so uh, Richard says this is actually a restriction of presidential power rather than an open-ended blank check. Uh, by contrast, uh, uh, Bruce Ackerman in the New York Times claimed recently that President Obama is basically embracing the expanse of an essentially unlimited vision of uh, authorization of force that President Bush uh, embraced by demanding the ability to deter and preempt future acts of terrorism in, in associated uh, conflicts. Uh, which is it? Is, is he restricting or expanding presidential power? First, I want to disagree with Richard that the authorization for the use of military force from 2001 continues here. We are now 13 and a half years later. The authorization for the use of military force cannot be seen as a blank check forever for the president to use military force. And here it's using military force against a group that didn't even exist in 2001. Second, I agree with what Bruce Ackerman said in the New York Times. I think this is a purported attempt to put in limits, but it's really seeking a blank check to use military force in the future for an enemy that's going to be there for a long period of time. I think it's essential that when military force is authorized, it be for a specific, specific purpose for a limited time, and that's not what's being sought here. Um, uh, Richard, your response. Yeah, uh, on the last point, I don't think there's anything about the power to declare war or the power to make authorizations, which require they be short in time and limited in scope. I think that's a matter of what it is that Congress wants to do. I mean, uh, go back to Pearl Harbor and now say, I hereby authorize the use of force, no ground troops allowed, and three years later you have to come back. He does have a three-year limitation in there, which is in striking contrast to the fact that it's open-ended with respect to 2001. 
My view is anything which is part of a continuous evolution of an earlier conflict, uh, when you have groups breaking off one way or another, is in fact covered by the original resolution. If there were a time limitation, that would obviously change things. But what's clearly going on is that the legitimacy, politically speaking, of that earlier resolution is heavily frayed. And the question then is what to do about it. And my view is one of the reasons why the president is an ineffective commander-in-chief is that you can give different interpretations to this kind of thing, and each of you could point to something in the text that will, in fact, support that particular position. And John Rue, John Yu, who's on the opposite side of many of these issues, wrote this morning on the AEI side that don't vote for this kind of authorization at all because he thinks it's very, very much narrower. And my own view is if one person who's very distinguished like Bruce or like Irwin says, hey, this is a blank check, and somebody like John said, hey, this is a noose around the neck, you better redraft. Um, Irwin, can you give us some historical context here about the president and war-making authorities? Um, uh, Did uh, the framers intend for presidents to ask Congress uh, for explicit declarations and, uh, you know, give us the recent history of the president and uh, congressional authorization when it comes to war powers? Mm -hmm. Let me start with framers' intent. I don't think we will ever know what the framers intended, probably as to any area, and certainly not as to here. Justice Robert Jackson in Youngstown, Sheet and Two versus Sawyer, perhaps the most important case, or one of the most important, President's power wrote, just what our forefathers did envision, or would envision, had they seen modern practices, must be divined from materials almost as enigmatic as the dreams Joseph was called on to interpret for Pharaoh. A century and a half of partisan debate and scholarly speculation yields no net result, but only supplies more or less apt quotations from respected sources on each side of any question. And I think Justice Jackson was right when it comes to trying to figure out what did the president, what did the framers intend as the presidential power. And besides that, it's such a different world today. I don't think we can gain much guidance. I think we can discern certain general principles, and one is what I said earlier. I think the Constitution is an elegant structure that generally requires two branches of government to be involved for any important action. And so that's why I think Article 1, Section 8 says Congress has to declare war. Article 2 says the president is commander-in-chief. Two branches should be involved with regard to any war. In terms of historical practice, it varies tremendously. There are many instances of presidents using troops without any congressional declaration of war or even without any congressional authorizations. There are other instances where there have been broad congressional authorizations. I think, for example, of the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution that was passed by Congress in 1965 that authorized the president to use military force to repel North Vietnamese aggression. It was that that was said to be the congressional basis for the war in Vietnam. And there have been four instances in American history where Congress has actually declared war. So the practice in terms of Congress and the president when it comes to the use of force has varied enormously over the course of American history. Richard, does Irwin have the history right, and do you agree with his views about the balance between presidential and congressional power when it comes to war? Well, I I agree on some points and disagree on others. There's no question that the practice associated with the operations of wars on the one hand and or police actions on the other has been highly erratic. Uh, Certainly with World War II and Pearl Harbor, it was a relatively easy case, but I think we managed to fight a war in Korea as a police action. There was no declaration of war in 
of Vietnam, and in fact, with the current ISIS situation, since we're not quite sure that we're dealing with states, uh, Erwin is surely right to say that anything about the sort of conventions of war that existed when only states were players in international relationships is true. But I disagree with Erwin on the implications of his sort of constitutional indeterminism. Uh, what happens is, let's suppose that Justice Jackson is indeed correct when he says that we're trying to sort of read a Delphic oracle, which is not speaking all too clearly. Um, at that point, it works both ways. Not only is it possible to condemn the president for violating the spirit, but it's also possible to say that changed circumstances mean that all these fuddy-duddies who think that you have to have a traditional authorization of war, of war are completely untuned for the way in which the vicissitudes of modern conflict are taking place. There's a great danger in sort of making the changed circumstances the centerpiece of constitutional deliberation because there's no monopoly on intuitions as to which way it runs. And my own view about this is that historically it seems pretty clear uh, that the power with respect to foreign affairs has shifted away from the original document in favor of more presidential and less congressional power. And the explanation is essentially in foreign affairs, particularly on wars, you have to tend to speak with a more unified voice than you do on domestic matters, and that tends to explain the shift. Erwin, let's turn from the war-making power to executive orders uh, regarding immigration. Uh, President Obama has been praised by some and criticized by others for uh, delaying deportation of immigrants through executive order. Uh, what's your view of his constitutional position on uh, this question, and is his use of executive orders in the domestic sphere consistent with uh, what the framers intended? As a matter of law, it's absolutely clear that President Obama has the authority to decide for the federal government to not prosecute or to not deport anyone he chooses. Prosecutorial discretion is an inherent part of presidential power. In fact, the Supreme Court in United States versus Nixon declared, and I'm quoting, the executive branch has exclusive authority and absolute discretion to decide whether to prosecute a case. The same has always been so with regard to immigration. In fact, the Supreme Court just a couple of years ago in Arizona versus the United States said that it's the president's authority to decide whether somebody should be deported. In fact, Republican presidents have used discretion as much as Democratic ones. In 1987, in response to politics in El Salvador and Nicaragua, the Reagan administration took executive action to stop deportation of 200,000 Nicaraguan exiles. In 1990, President George H.W. Bush advanced his policy, foreign policy by stopping deportation of Chinese students, and in 1991, kept thousands of Kuwaiti citizens who were illegal in the United States from being deported. In 2001, President George W. Bush limited deportation of Salvadoran citizens to request the Salvadoran president in order that deportation decisions include consideration of factors, whether a mother was nursing a child, whether an undocumented person was a U.S. military veteran. There have been five other instances where presidents, both Democratic and Republican, have given deferred actions with regard to deportations, which is what President Obama was doing here. This is clearly within the president's constitutional authority. We can debate separately whether it's desirable as a matter of policy. Uh, Richard Irwin says that uh, President Obama has Republican presidents, including Ronald Reagan, on his side when it comes to immigration and the Constitution. Do you agree or disagree? 
Um, I think I disagree with Erwin on this, although I'm very impressed with the way in which he rattles off all of these authorities. I think it's an unfair advantage that he's prepared. Um, but on the other hand, I think also if you listen to the quote, it doesn't cover the case. The Nixon quote talked about the absolute discretion and authority to prosecute an individual case. And the reason you give that to the president is that trying to figure out whether or not the evidence is worthy of the prosecution, whether the cost of prosecution is uh, too high given alternative explanations, is, I think, something that we really have to accept. Uh, but this is not what's going on in this particular case. What the president has sort of announced is not an exercise of prosecutorial discretion in individual cases. He says here are broad classes of people, infants in the United States under a certain age and so forth. And what I'm going to do is decide on blank not to enforce the law. Um, I recall that when this thing came up prior to the president's recent order, uh, what he did is he announced that this is indeed a very important question, but if you're going to change fundamental policy in the United States, you have to do it um, with the authorization of Congress. And then he changed his own tune. So I think, in effect, that the president's earlier version on this stuff was in a more accurate account of what's going on, on that it cannot be a case in which you faithfully execute the laws of the United States if you have absolute discretion in any and all ways in which to enforce them. The faithfully has to carry a lot of weight with it under these circumstances. Faithfully means you exercise a fiduciary duty when you examine the facts and circumstances of an individual case, but it doesn't do the same thing when you have a wholesale repeal. Now, some of these other cases in which the president acted, I suspect he did so when there wasn't clear legislative authority moving in one direction or another. And in those cases, as Justice Jackson said, in the steel seizure cases, uh, where the Congress has not spoken, the president has more power. Where the Congress, however, as he said, has forbidden certain actions, the president's power goes, I think his words were, to a low ebb. And I think the president is on very shaky ground in the immigration cases. Erwin, are there any instances where you think that uh, President Obama has proposed to exceed his constitutional authority? In the Loretta Lynch confirmation hearings, the Attorney General nominee noted that the Office of Legal Counsel had viewed some of his immigration proposals as being not authorized by law. Are there any uh, executive orders that you think go too far? I disagree with the Office of Legal Counsel memo, but if it's okay, can I respond quickly to Richard and then answer your question directly? Uh, of course. First, I think that Richard draws a false distinction between individual cases and class decisions. Of course, if the president can decide not to prosecute an individual or not to deport an individual, the president can also make that based on a group of individuals. Let me give you an easy example. The federal government has made a decision not to prosecute possession of small amounts of marijuana. The government won't prosecute credit card frauds below a certain dollar amount. That's certainly their discretion, and it's made with regard to a class and it's inconceivable to me that that's not within executive power. Second, Richard says that President Obama has been inconsistent in his statements. I don't think so at all. President Obama has acknowledged he cannot, by executive order, grant citizenship to anyone. Only Congress can do that. But that's not what he's doing here. Here what he's doing is choosing not to enforce immigration law, not to deport. Finally, Richard says that the president has to faithfully execute the law. Of course, that's right. But it's always been part of presidential power, the power of any executive, to decide whether to initiate prosecutions or deportations. Now, I think the Office of Legal Counsel memo draws distinctions that are nowhere found in the law. So, Jeff, in answer to your specific question, I don't think that there's anything about what President Obama's announced as immigration, whether in 2014 or back in 2012 with regard to the so-called Dreamers, that exceeds presidential power. 
It's always the authority of the president to decide whether to initiate a prosecution or initiate a deportation. Uh, Richard, I want to uh, ask you about your praise for Calvin Coolidge. You have said that he was a serious political thinker in the same way that John Adams was. What is it about President Coolidge and his approach to presidential power that you admire? Okay, one, just one line in response to Irwin. His position, if taken, means the president need not enforce any law ever. And so you've got to find some way to cut back on that. As to Calvin Coolidge, well, yes, I've always been a fan of the man. I'm also something of a fan of Warren Harding, which I think really exposes my vulnerabilities. And what I like, for example, about Calvin Coolidge's most heroic act was the one which took place, which got him the vice presidential nomination in the first place, which was his view on basically strikes against the public interest by the police officers. Uh, he in Massachusetts shut down the Boston police strike. And I think, in effect, that the inability of most chief executives and most congresses and most legislatures today to curb the uh, power of public unions has, in fact, been the source of an immense amount of dislocation. It's true in New York, it's true in Illinois, and it's true in California, uh, where they, uh, basically the police guards and the custodial forces that are doing the prison stuff are the most powerful block inside the state. And you cannot, in my view, be a serious political thinker if you believe that the government should should succeed in advance its powers to uh, do the essential functions of the police uh, to a series of union agreements which are inimical to the public interest. And I think that Coolidge, more than anybody else, sort of understood that. I also think, in effect, that the Coolidge was somebody who understood that presidents don't create economies. What they do is they create stable environments in which private initiatives could take place. Remember, the Depression did not take place under Coolidge. It took place under Hoover. It was also clear that in 1932, if Coolidge had been inclined to run, he was probably still an extremely popular American um, uh, presidential nominee because he did understand these things. It's a real confusion to assume that uh, Coolidge Coolidge, who was a sort of an essentially limited government guy, both domestically and in terms of foreign policy, was the same as Hoover, who as Coolidge's Secretary of Commerce, always had all of these pie-in-the-sky initiatives to take forward. And Coolidge said of Hoover at one time, this man has a thousand good ideas, all of which are wrong. Uh, so I've always been a kind of a Coolidge fan. Erwin, uh, who is your uh, presidential hero when it comes to uh, presidential power? I think there are two. One is George Washington. I think it's important to remember how many things that George Washington did that aren't specified in the Constitution that set the tone and the precedent for all of American history. For example, choosing to step down after two terms as president. That wasn't then in the Constitution. I think it was something quite desirable. He undoubtedly could have been reelected again. The other president that I most admire is Franklin Roosevelt. He had to deal with among the most serious crises that any president had to deal with. He came into office in the worst depression in American history. He had to deal with World War II. And he did just a remarkable job in terms of governing the United States in very difficult times. Well, right, can gentlemen. I comment on? Of course. Yes. Oh, first of all, I, I think we should. If you ask me about Coolidge, but if you know the person, I think who stands shoulders in this case is also Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and he really did have some genuine questions like denying the writ of habeas corpus, putting people into jail and stuff like that uh, through a civil war, which is a much more difficult thing. As to Roosevelt, I'll just make one observation. His domestic policies were an unmitigated disaster. His wartime leadership was quite excellent. 
I'm glad that you mentioned uh, President Lincoln. Uh, yesterday was his birthday, and we launched a spectacular initiative at the Constitution Center to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the 13th Amendment and of the Reconstruction Amendments, which all turn 150 over the next five years. Gentlemen, it's time for closing arguments. Um, uh, Irwin, um, as you reflect historically about presidents and the Constitution, what would your advice to a president be? Uh, is it uh, best to take an expansive or constricted view of presidential power? And um, how broadly do you think President Obama is doing on that score? Context and circumstances matter so much. What's going on in the world matters so much. The political composition of Congress matters so much. We've got to remember that for six of the eight Obama years, he had to deal with at least one House of Congress being of the opposing political party. That very much limited what he could do. I think the presidents who have been most successful are those who have a clear vision. I, of course, totally disagree with Richard, but Franklin Roosevelt. I think his domestic policies were absolutely essential at the time, and the reason they've survived all these years is because they were overall so successful. I disagree with what Ronald Reagan stood for and what he did, but I thought he was also a very successful president because he had a clear vision. To the extent that President Obama has not been a success, and I think in many ways he hasn't, I think it's because he has not had a clear vision and he hasn't adequately explained it to the American people. Richard, um, your closing uh, thoughts on President Obama and the Constitution and executive power. Starting with executive power, I think the first thing the president ought to do is to, when in doubt, decide, at least on domestic affairs, not to push unless he could get a broad consensus and congressional approval. On foreign affairs, I think the president actually has to be much more effective. In terms of President Obama, I think the reason why he's been a very bad domestic president, as was Roosevelt, is he does have a consistent vision, but it's the wrong vision. Uh, the president seems to think that it's progressive policies and the regulation of the economy the strengthening of labor unions, the raising of the minimum wage, and so forth, which will create growth. He's had pretty much control over everything in terms of the way in which the legislation has gone with the Obamacare statute, Dodd-Frank, and so forth. And the result of it all is, take just one number, uh, the median income of the American citizens is down under his regime. And I call it that mainly because he doesn't know the, the difference between growth on the one hand and strangulation on the other and puts much too much weight on a system of equity which can never be realized at the expense of growth, which is sustainable for all Americans. Erwin Chemerinsky, Richard Epstein, thank you for a debate of dizzying intelligence and clarity, a wonderful way to celebrate President's Day weekend, and thanks also for your leadership of the Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board. Please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.